Across America and around the world, famous vintners and favorite destinations. We share the stories behind the wines. Welcome to Vintage, hosted by the voice of wine, Brian Bushlack. And now, volume two of four from our weekend at the Destin Charity Wine Auction, where vintners, chefs, and patrons from across America and around the world teamed up to raise $3 million to benefit children on Florida's Emerald Coast. And so nice to see one of our dear friends from the Pacific Northwest, Eugenia Keegan. She's the general manager for Jackson Family Wines in Oregon, representing her Oregon wineries at this event. And I think what impressed us both was the knowledge and the passion so many people in the Southeast have for Oregon wines and the growth of Oregon wine sales across the Gulf Coast. Rather explosive. This is my first time in Sandestin, and I did the VIP tasting yesterday afternoon, and I was amazed at the level of knowledge. When I said, I'm pouring Oregon Pinot Noir, people were just delighted. Makes you feel good, all that hard work, right? Yeah, it's only been 50 years (laughs) for an overnight success. Tell us what's happening in Oregon now. Our listeners all around the world here downloading this podcast now and uh, i know that you are very busy with jackson family in oregon tell us about the different wineries and what's going on well jackson family has four wineries in oregon four small boutique wineries graham rain winery xena crown winery and then two that we have purchased that are long established wineries Penarash winery and willikensia estate and uh, we have Willikensia Estate here with me today, as well as Cena Crown and Grand Moraine. So we've got uh, very good exposure. We just butted out. We're, a little, we're quite a bit later than our neighbors in uh, California. So we're just beginning to see the growing season, and that brings a lot of excitement. It sure does. Uh, it's nice to be down here and enjoy this weather. And uh, it reminds me of a couple months ago in Naples, I ran into Barbara, and I was talking to her about jackson family and the entry into the oregon market and uh it's really gone well hasn't i mean and it's been well received too and quite honestly initially there was concern about oh no the californians are coming well it's been very low-key and there's been a lot of respect for the oregon industry right Yeah, and I think it's twofold. Number one, they jumped right into the community, which is very Jackson family. Uh, They very much want to support the community where their employees live and work. So that was done in a very robust way right from the get-go. And then it's the quality of wine that we're putting out, that we are maintaining the status quo of very, very high-level Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. You speak about Pinot Noir. Obviously, Chardonnay. I was just out in the Willamette Valley last week, and... uh, You know, the Chardonnay thing that's going on in Oregon is pretty special because that Oregon Chardonnay, for everybody listening to this, is distinctly different from what they may have tasted previously, right? Absolutely. In fact, that was part of the uh, problem with entry into the market when... Oregon started making Chardonnays in the 80s and early 90s. The perception of Chardonnay was what was, for New World Chardonnay, was what they knew from California. So it was big, it was tropical fruit, and uh, these are much different wines. They're more European in style, higher acid, a little bit leaner, but wonderful food wines, and the world is catching on right now. Let's talk about each one of the different wineries, too. I know, uh, you know, Lynn Penner Ash and there are so many amazing women in wine, yourself included. Uh, what's that transition been like? I know she's still involved, but, uh, you know, she's kind of, you know, taking a little more time off here and there. But what's that transition been like 
<laughs> you say she's taking more time off, but she's not. So Lynn is technically a consultant, but uh, and we do have a full-time winemaker, Kate Ayers, again, a woman on site, day-to-day. But uh, Lynn is very, very involved and continues to be very involved in the picking decisions, blending decisions, and final bottling. So we've got Lynn on board now for several more years and could not be more excited about that. Maybe it's Ron who's taking more time off. That is correct. Ron is taking more time <laughs> off. You will find him literally on the river. That is the answer. Where is Ron? On the river. Literally on the river. <laughs> Tell us about Willa Kenzie. And it's been so many years since I uh, paid a visit there. Uh, it's a great Oregon brand. And I feel like what you're doing is kind of restoring some of that, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Willa Kenzie is absolutely one of the most beautiful estates. And when we bought it in October of 2016, the winemaker there had been working with uh, Bernie LaCroute, the previous owner, for 16 years and decided it was time to start his own winery. And we hired Eric Kramer, and Eric had made the wines at Domaine Serene the previous six years, a very well-known winemaker. And he had been looking at that estate for years. So the opportunity to go in and literally peel back the onion. It has 45 different blocks. It's just a beautiful site, lots of elevations, benches, ridges, and he has just been having a blast going in and working on that estate. The wines are beautiful. That is a spectacular property, and I think we're going to visit during Oregon Wine Month. On that last visit, uh, I tasted a Gamay Noir, a little more fruit, right? That varietal, I think, has potential, doesn't it? I mean, is it is there a reason it hasn't taken off? Uh, not really a reason that it hasn't taken off. Like everything, it needs focus to be done well. There are probably a dozen uh, people making Gamay right now in, in Oregon. It does beautifully. It was interesting when Eric first looked at it. He thought, well, Gamay. And then he tasted a couple of them, and he thought, oh, Gamay, and he has put a real focus to it, and the wines are just lovely. I think Gamay has plenty of opportunity in Oregon. That's good to hear. Opportunity seems to be the key word for Oregon, not only what we've talked about, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Gamay, Bubbles. A lot of people getting into bubbles now and doing it very well. Yeah, thank you. Opportunity is probably the key word there. And Grammarain has started a uh, intensive bubble program. We released our rosé, sparkling rosé, two years ago now. And we have a Blanc de Blanc, but it is still entourage in the classic European uh, style. And I think you will see over the next 10 years, as you know, sparkling wine takes a very long time to make and uh, very capital intensive. You have to be very, very patient. And I think in the next 10 years, you'll start to see incredible bubbles coming out of Oregon. With the growth in the Oregon industry, you know, we look back, I've been doing this show for close to 15 years now and have seen that exponential growth over the last decade or so. Um, What lies ahead for Oregon? Where are we at? I mean, I know we're still a baby when it comes to, you know, the old world and all that, but where do you see Oregon wine going in the future? Uh, I bet back to that word opportunity. Um, there, Oregon is the one region in the world that is still growing at double digits in the marketplace, which tells us there are a lot of people who are interested in what we're doing. There's plenty of land to plant, and for a young winemaker without a lot of money, it is absolutely a gold mine. So I see nothing but a very, very strong positive for as far as we can see out in the future. It's interesting too when you. Uh travel to faraway places as I have on this trip and I know you have as well here we are in 
Destin, Miramar Beach, the Panhandle of Florida. I've spent time in Georgia. I know David Adelsheim will be in Georgia later this year. I got a tip from our friends at Reynolds Lake Oconee that he's coming there. It's interesting, the, the perception versus the reality of not only Oregon but Washington State in terms of geography and they know the wines, but in terms of, and I wouldn't expect people from 2,000 miles away to know the geography per se, but uh, but it really is interesting to get that perception because I think the one thing people don't understand, particularly about Oregon, is the diversity of the varietals and the terrain and, and literally what's going on all across the state, not only the Willamette Valley. Yeah, well, number one, I think it's interesting that you just told me where David Adelsheim will be. He's my partner, and it's really nice to know his calendar. I'm super amused. Thank you. Uh, But you're absolutely right. We talk a lot about the Willamette Valley and certainly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, the bubbles program that's very Willamette Valley focused. But we have 19 AVAs in the state of Oregon. I think something like over 70 varieties are planted and growing strong. So there is a lot of diversity and opportunity in Oregon, not just the Willamette Valley. If you want to make uh, Tempranillo, Malbec, you've got, oh, there's, I could go on and on and on. There's just plenty of things to do. It's diverse in soils, it's diverse in climate, and it just has lots of, uh, lots of different opportunities available. Last question, and by the way, that was merely a coincidence that I was at Reynolds Lake Oconee, we were talking Oregon wine, and how much they love it, and then David's coming out this fall, so, and now I run into you, so, uh, Last question is, what excites you most right now about the Oregon industry? The fact that we have an entire group of citizens, not just in the U.S., but now all over the world, that are looking for wines of this quality and this style. And it just gives us... To go out in the marketplace, you're, you're creating excitement all the time. Nothing is ho-hum about what we're doing. And we as winemakers continue to strive communally to learn and to work to make better and better wines. So there's nothing but a bright future ahead, both in quality and in the reception from the marketplace. Eugenia Keegan, GM for Jackson Family Wines in Oregon. Nice to see Oregon so well represented, 2,500 miles away from the Willamette Valley in Destin, Florida. And Eugenia wasn't the only Oregon connection on the Emerald Coast. Dr. Madaya Ravana in Destin with a live auction lot featuring his Bodega Corazon del Sol in Argentina's Mendoza region. Of course, Dr. Ravana also representing his Ravana family label from Napa Valley and his Oregon winery, Alexana, at one of his favorite events of the year. It's an amazing event. I love to come here and support this amazing charity. The people of Destin have done a tremendous job. He's one of the top um, money risers for the um, charity in the United States. That's not easy. Now you are from Houston. You've got a winery in Napa Valley, right? Yes. A winery in Oregon and the winery in Argentina. What was it about those three regions that attracted you? I think they're all world-class wine-producing areas. As you know, Napa Cabernets are one of the top wines in the world and is uh, is the main premier location in the United States for the Cabernet. And in Oregon, produces amazing Pinot Noir. Lately, they're also producing a great Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, Riesling. It strikes me because they're all so unique 
though, right? Every winery is different. Very unique. Oregon Pinot Noirs are more Burgundian style. Uh, they have a lot of finesse. A really in great Pinot Noirs are made. World-class Pinot Noirs are made from there. And we are, we are very happy to produce one of those wines. <laughs> and tell us about Mendoza now. I haven't been there. Uh, what attracted you to that region? So, Brian, I just went on a trip and to see. I've never been to Argentina, 2008. So I looked at it. I was struck by this beauty of the Andes Mountain, the vineyard, and I tasted some of the wine. And with the unique, you know, Malbec is unique from Argentina. Nowhere else, Malbec does as well as in Argentina. So I was attracted to that, and I thought, you know, buy a small piece of property, and I ended up building a winery. It's one thing to do that in Napa or Sonoma or Oregon or Washington, but what was it like doing it in, in Argentina? I mean, that's a big leap. Yeah, it is it really was more than I thought. It was the most difficult project that I did, but, you know, I had a lot of help, but we got it done, and we are very happy now, and we are producing some of the best wines from Argentina now. So as different as the wineries are, not only in regions but in varietals, are you able to cross-pollinate and have the crew from Alexana down to Mendoza or Mendoza up to Napa and, and really uh, trade information and learn from each other? Absolutely. We you know, send uh, our winemaker as well as our staff to go to all three wineries and learn from each, each place. And we have these wines in all three locations. For example, you go to Argentina, our wines are displayed from Napa, Oregon. Same thing in Oregon, same thing in uh, Napa. So what is it like for tourists in Argentina from all over the world, from the Southern Hemisphere, tasting that Oregon Pinot? I mean, you're almost like an ambassador for the Oregon industry down under in, in Mendoza, right? Yeah, we, you know, we do that if they want it. We don't offer it to everybody. We have it displayed. Uh, the main focus, of course, is Argentinian wines when they come to visit, but they have the option to taste a Napa Cab if they want our Oregon Pinot Noir. <laughs> yeah. So you love your wines, obviously. You've got three wineries. What else do you enjoy? I, I love traveling. I, you know, I come coming to the events like this, supporting that helps the children um, and many other charities. We go around the country. We go to Sun Valley, Napa Wine Auction, Naples. So you know, I'm a cardiologist. I give, I take care of the patients, and I strongly believe in supporting the charities, especially the education and also their health issues. What was it that attracted you to the industry in the first place? I mean, you obviously have this insatiable, incredible passion for wine. How did that evolve? So, Brian, the first time I was in Tuscany, a little over 20 years ago, that's where I fell in love with the vineyard. I almost bought the property there and decided it's not practical. Happened to go to Napa and found this uh, property. You know, I thought, okay, I'm going to start from scratch. 
controlled equality from the beginning. Met Heidi Barrett, I met Jim Barber, some of the best wine people in the wine industry. And I always had a focus to make the best wine we can. And uh, I'm very, very fortunate to produce our wines, which are well-recognized. Well, they are very well-received all around the world. It's so nice to spend time with Dr. Ravana in Destin. And we'll be releasing a more in-depth interview with him on location at his beautiful estate in Napa Valley. That show coming up soon here on Vintage. Well, speaking of Napa, many wineries are still recovering from the fires in the fall of 2017. You may recall the Atlas Fire wiped out Roy Estate, but thankfully, Shirley Roy and everyone at the winery, well, they got out literally moments before fire engulfed the estate. Shirley lost everything, literally. Got out with the clothes on her back. The good news is she survived, and so did her vineyard, which is absolutely remarkable. It was nice to sit down with her and revisit how she and her husband, Charles, founded their winery in 1999. Well, I've been a foodie my entire life, not necessarily a wine person my entire life, but my late husband and I just fell in love with Napa the first time we came out. It was just so intoxicating. We were from back east, New Jersey. That's where our businesses were. And any time we had a chance, we'd go out to Napa to visit. Okay, so it's one thing to visit. It's a whole other thing to actually get into the business. At what point were you really taking this seriously and going, okay, we're going we're gonna to make the move? Well, it's kind of interesting because the story of Roy Estate really isn't about deciding to make the move. It's really about serendipity in that uh, we had come out to Napa because I was on a board that was based in San Francisco, and Charles and I would come out, and we would always get our Napa fix. And one time when we were out, we started looking at some property and bought a little piece of real estate over at Silverado Country Club. We were going to do our Florida thing from New Jersey. And uh, that was what we originally started doing. And then while we were waiting to build that house that we had designed, um, a real estate broker said he had a pocket listing on Johnny Miller's place. Were we interested? That's Johnny Miller, the golfer. The Double Eagle Ranch, because he's Mormon, there was no vineyard on it. It was just horses and cows. And the intention was it's just an incredibly beautiful spot in Napa at the base of Atlas Peak. We decided we were going to plant a vineyard and sell fruit beyond the periphery of the wine business. Charles said, won't that be fun? And then in 2000, as we started to plant the vineyard, our vineyard management company came to us and said, Helen Turley is looking for a project your size. Are you interested? We were like, wow, Helen Turley? Of course we want to meet Helen Turley. Met Helen. Well, three months and 300 Teslas later, we were in the wine business. (laughs) And the rest is history. So talk about this property. It's a unique piece of property, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's nestled right at the base of Atlas Peak. We're actually in our own little mini valley. We have both hillside and valley floor. We have this actually a reserved Indian archaeological site at the heart of the property. And we bought the property from Johnny. He said to us, we should feel privileged to be the caretakers of the land because the Indians could have chosen anywhere in Napa Valley, and yet this is one of the sites they chose. Well, being from back east, we thought that was a little granola Right, But all these years later, when I walk the property and I I, I have these beautiful grapes that make our wonderful estate-grown wine, I'm a believer. Yeah, it's just, it's beautiful. And we're on, so we are uh, with a west-looking vantage point. So just beautiful, beautiful sunsets. It's just an amazing, amazing property. 
Well, speaking of amazing, uh, I know for you at this point in life, uh, it's a rebirth of sorts after the fires. And I know that uh, property was lost, but vineyards saved in the fires in Napa Valley. Uh, Tell us about that experience, because I know, as you told me, you literally got out with the shirt on your back and you're here. That's the great news, right? And the fruit's still there. Everything's good from that standpoint, but it's been, I'm sure, a very reflective period for you. It most certainly has. Uh, you know, the fire, it was a harrowing experience to, to go through that and escape and then not find out till four days later that my, my home had burned to the ground as well as many other structures on the property. The amazing thing is that we had literally just finished picking on Thursday and the fire happened on Sunday and our vineyard, our, our rather our winery is not on site. It's uh, in the middle of the valley, so we were really incredibly lucky because we were using closed tanks. We were in a facility where we had backup generators, so everything went on without a beat. And so we'll have a beautiful 17 vintage. The vineyard was spared, which is just really incredible. Uh, And it's just because those burning embers were flying up to two miles, and that's really what basically got the structures. And if you looked around the house where the vineyard is and where some of my plantings were, they were untouched. And yet that happens. So it's, hey, you all understand that here in, in Destin and certainly with the hurricanes. Uh, the only difference in California and being an East Coaster, I've been through the blizzards, I've been through the hurricanes. But when you're in California with an earthquake, which I experienced the earthquake in Napa several years ago, and a fire, you have no notice. And, uh, but the aftermath remains the same. When you lose everything, um, it's really kind of interesting because that was something that was really bad. And certainly there are things that I miss. But what's really great is the, the bonds and people that are so supportive that you really don't even understand the su- level of support and uh, friendship and help that you'll get from people. And that is something that I will carry for the rest of my life and which makes me even more focused on wanting to give back. And to be there and to help people understand that it's a journey. It's not just, I mean, we're into this uh, a year and a half now. And we're just, you know, we won't be rebuilt for another year and a half. So it's a three, it's almost a three-year process. And it's something where we, we look at that. You look at that on the TV. You see a hurricane and you see it wipe everything out. And you just, I don't know, I thought because I had never been in a hurricane as bad as they have down here, that you you know just kind of clean up, you rebuild, and you get on with things. And it's not so easy. So having that understanding gives me more of an appreciation of life to be here, of what's really important. And in comparison to losing my husband very unexpectedly in 2010, this pales in comparison. So I feel I know what my purpose is moving forward. Nobody could say it better. Uh, talk about what it meant in the aftermath to be on the receiving end well it really it really is quite something because um when you do this or when you when you experience this i mean i am lucky enough to be in a position where i was able to to leave i went to friend's house and then i ended up in a hotel and i pulled out my credit card and i ended up staying at that hotel for a couple of months and i had insurance to cover it and that was, that was all fine and good. There are so many people that were in the shelters that didn't know what to do. That, um, so it, I have a little bit of a different perspective. But 
Yes, you get back. I mean, I didn't even think when they set up the federal government assistance program until I heard some other friends that certainly were had a lot more than I did that they were going down there because they help you with everything. It was it was it was bizarre to be honest with you, but it was very comforting. And then you, when you're in the middle of it, it was so hard to watch where they were. Um, supporting us and they were having all these different fundraisers which was great so I didn't really it wasn't able to participate then because I was still in shock but you know what it gives me such a warm comforting feeling in my heart that um, people were out there doing it and that's kind of what helps raise you up and it helps you know that you're going to be able to go forward our mailing list customers were just incredible supporting us with um, with buying wine like crazy um so that was really a, a really a great benefit too. And you know, um, our part, me and my partners and I lost, you know, all those buildings, and we're going to regroup. But we're all here. It's a wonderful vineyard. This is an amazing industry to be in. I mean, when I first joined the Napa Valley Vintners Association, it was like, oh my God, I was so honored to be able to participate in this organization that I had prior experience to going to the auction and supporting Napa Valley. So it's an amazing community, the Vintners, and um, and it's great to be down here in Destin. And because the vineyard survived, the wines live on, and so that continues. And I know... Uh, there's a lot to look forward to from that aspect too, right? Oh my God, there is absolutely. And I would also like to say that although I lost my personal wine collection, which was not good, the the vineyard, you know, our Roy Estate wines are all off site, and they were protected, and they're fine. So we've got all of our back vintages, we've got our current and our future vintages. It's exciting. This is was actually last year was our 14th year, our harvest working with Philippe Malka. So that was really terrific. And we've just opened our vineyard. Well, actually, about six months ago, we opened our vineyard studio, which is where the barn used to be. So literally, we invite people to come right in the middle of the vineyard is where we have this incredible vineyard studio tasting. And um, so you can really, I used to say to people when we would be down and meet people at the gate because you can see the entire vineyard from that vantage point. So you see the little mini valley. You look to the west. You see the Butler Bridge that goes over the Napa River. It's just, it's. I'm probably talking too much, but you know what? It's so magical, and I'm always so excited to share everything about it. But now, literally, we can taste in the vineyard. So it is, and we pull open those. uh, We have all these glass doors. We open them up, and you just sit there, and you experience what's been grown there right there. So that's really, really exciting. Well, nice spending time with Shirley Roy from Roy Estate. And as Shirley points out, the winery is open. They have plenty of spectacular wine to share and sell. And it is definitely worth a stop on your next trip to the Napa Valley. More from the Destin Charity Wine Auction. Bill Samuels Jr. from Maker's Mark headlines Volume 3. And in Volume 4, we meet Jean-Noel Formeau and other friends here on Vintage. Vintage is a presentation of Feedback Media. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.